holy shit, you know, what just happened? When you're going through that, you don't think of of nothing, the, the, like severity of the circumstances. You just you, you pretty much go into react mode. You know, yeah, you're trying you're to make like it to robotic. the next But after it, when you when everything starts to hit you, you start to decompress a little bit. We were just standing around going like, what the fuck? Like, now what do we do? Hey, this is Matt Cox, and I'm going to be doing a, a, a non-true crime podcast today. And we're going to be talking to Kevin Donaldson. And this is Mike, I'm going to say Fallis, but it's not I'm wrong. It's the last, your last name is? Felace. Felace. Okay, it seems like it's spelled phallus, but that's fine. Um, and, of course, he's got a bald head and everything. So there's a whole thing there. All right, so we're going to be talking about uh, their podcast and their story, and uh, I appreciate it. And I'm also going to I'm gonna throw this in here, too. Like, if you like the video, do me a favor and hit the subscribe button. Hit the bell so you get notified. Leave a comment and share the video to all your friends and family so they can check it out, too. And I appreciate it. And here we're going to go. That's it. So, and I, like, I don't give a shit if I fuck up. Or well, there's no, that's the one thing I want to ask. Cursing, like, you want me to keep it? I, yeah. I could do either Perfect. way. No. Okay. I could care less. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it does. I don't think it's going to change that much anyway. Okay. But like I was saying, when I, when I started, like, I was, yeah. like, he'll leave all this in here. Right. Listen, I've had arguments with guys on, on camera. We've had, well, get up and go to the bathroom and come back and everything. And that, <laughs> the great thing is that the people that watch YouTube is like, they would rather have that than perfection. Yeah. I've been on other guys' podcasts where they actually will say the same intro like 10 times in a row till they get it perfect. It's like, well, stop it, bro. You're not perfect. Like, you fuck up. Like, I, I fuck up all the time. Like, I'd well, rather show you I fuck up. It's like everyday guys that are watching these things. So right. Every, everyday guys fuck up. You know, you want right. that perfectionist shit. But that's what makes you relatable. But when I first started, okay. I wanted it to be perfect. And, you know, it's just, I'm not perfect. Like, that's a lie. It's just not true. Um, so, all right. So, let's so let's go ahead and um, – and so, Kevin, you were a, uh, you were a police officer with uh, – is it – it was Ro- it was no it was Roseland, right. New Jersey, which is in Essex County. It's probably for give you a waypoint. It'll about ten minutes west of Newark. Okay, so we're very affluent town, but everybody from the inner city came, and that's where they stole stuff. Okay, yeah, <laughs> all right. And Mike, you were uh, you were an officer where? Uh, Lynnhurst, Lynnhurst, New Jersey. It's a Bur- lower Bergen County. Uh, give you an idea where it's at. It's one exit over from Giant Stadium. We're about ten miles west of New York City. Right. So I, I mean, I was raised in Florida, so I, and I was educated in Florida too. So honestly, like there's New York and it was probably only about five or 10 years ago. I realized that there was a difference between New York city and New York state. And oh, you can't call somebody from New York state. So from like, they make it very clear, like, oh yeah, you're from New York. He's no, I'm from upstate New York. Yeah. Yeah, 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 See, I have no idea. Like I I couldn't name, I don't, I'm not sure I could name all 50 states. (laughs) I I certainly couldn't name that. Listen, down here, I'm having a problem with the East and the West coast. I'm calling people. I'm saying, Hey, I'm going to be in uh I'm going to be in Tampa. I live on the other coast. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. But the, it's all foreign to me. By the way, I, I did hear your, your intro, and you're not the first person to call him a dick. I just want to, I just want to make that quite clear. <laughs> no. All right. So, well, all right. So, um, yeah, no, I, I listened to a couple of podcasts. You guys are, were giving each other a hard time the whole time. Well, that, so that, it's, it's an important thing for us because we're both, that's how police deal with stress. We deal right. with stress with humor, with some really dark, dark, dark humor. humor. Yeah. So when I go after him, I can tell people in my life that I love them. I can't tell him that I love him, but I can break his balls incessantly and really 
hit him hard. And he'll know, he'll know because he's in that life. All right, that's how he's showing that he cares right. about me. So, I mean, if, if someone from the outside actually heard the way we actually broke each other's balls, it's worse. probably think we hate each other. Yeah. yeah. It's worse. Yeah. Oh, listen, oh, I, listen, it's the same. When I got out of prison, I, I realized it took me, it took me a week or two to start to realize, wow, you, you really have to alter your behavior. Like I can't talk to normal people. Like I could, when you're talking to somebody and I can look at them and tell they're, they're like having these little, little, um, you know, little shocks almost to like, them. Like, like, like and I realized, yeah, exactly. I started to realize I actually had talked to my ex-wife and she was like, as I was talking, she's, she has no problem correcting me. She's like, thank you. I appreciate that. Please. And I'm like, what? And she's like, you don't say thank you. You don't say please. You don't say this. You cut me off. You're aggressive. You're that. And so I had to start altering my behavior because in prison, like you'll call somebody a scum, like, oh, you're a fucking scumbag and you're this. You know? But this is my, my good buddy. Right. Like we're mean to each other all the time and you can't be like that. Out. It spills over into our personal lives. So when we talk to people in our personal lives, it's very direct. It's this is the way that it is yeah. because you're used to doing it. Yeah, yeah. We're we're a little far removed from being police officers now. I think you you're what six years six out. Years. I'm eight years out. So it's slowly starting to fade, but it'll always be there in some for, form or fashion. Yeah, well, you think you're being assertive, but everybody else sees you as being aggressive. Correct, right? and see, sees us as being mean, and sees, right. yeah, it's it's not a good thing. Like I just see myself as assertive. You you, you can't have that that law enforcement dark humor with the general public. They they just don't understand, right? You know. You know, like, like we, we go to different crazy scenes. I mean, you, you're in a room with dead bodies. Yeah. You know, how are you supposed to just shut that off and go on to the next, you know, next call? It's like, oh, yeah, they're dead. Don't worry about it. You know, I explained, I explained police work like this when there was a dead body that I was sitting on. Uh, they always die on the toilet. You weren't, so, phys- you weren't physically sitting on it, were you? No, no, I was okay. sitting in a room. So oh, this, okay. this elderly woman, there's no dignity in death. Yeah. So this elderly woman dies. She has, uh, when you're on the toilet and you're having a, a heart attack, it feels like you're, you you got to take a shit. So she goes, tries to lay down in bed and she dies. We go there. So I have to sit on there until the detectives show up. And our detectives at that time were about an hour away. So I'm sitting in there two o'clock in the morning, just me and a dead body. And what do I do? I pull my gun out. I put it on my, 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 my thigh. And then I actually went to sleep in the room with a dead body. <laughs> And the detective shows up and he sees the gun out. He goes, what's the gun out for? And I said, because if she moves, she's getting double tapped right in the head, <laughs> you know, because I know she's dead. But that's that's how you deal with that stress, because, you know, you, you can't take that stuff home. We're human beings. Right. And that stuff builds up over time. And like I said, you know, that that call has to stay at that that call. It's not like your shift is over right after that you're done with that call. You know, you have to go to the next, the next call could be a domestic or the next call could be, you know, just a, a regular like medical call. You know, you have to leave that call behind you. You can't let it get to you or you're not going to be able to do the job the right way. Right. You see things like a, you see somebody who's been dead for a couple weeks and they, they, the smells bad. So you have to be able to shut that off automatically because guess what? Your lunch break might be coming up. And if you really let it affect you, you're not going to go eat. All right. So you just desensitize yourself to everything. And over time, that you, you, every time you see something that's horrible like that, you put on this different piece of armor because you you're human and you don't want to ever be hurt by that again. So over uh, it usually happens about the 10 or 15 year, year mark where you start getting so heavy and weighted down by all this different armor. And eventually there's a breaking point and it broke for him and it broke for me. Uh, 
until you learn how to release the armor. Right. All right. Well, so let's get into talk about your your story. So, I'm sorry. Uh, go ahead. No, no, no. It's uh, <laughs> it's tough every time I tell it right. because it's not a very proud moment. You know, you, you're a guy. We're, we're Mike's sort of a guy. Once and in a while. Once in a while. It depends on Music what right dress after, he's right wearing. Right after lunch, though. Yeah. You, you, when you go through certain feelings that are uncharacteristic of what a man should feel or what you think it should feel, you feel very weak. You feel very, uh, you just feel less manly. Yeah. Vulnerable. Vulnerable. My, my, my incident, hey, listen, I, everybody says, hey, you look, worked in Roseland. It's this nice, pretty white, you know, middle, uh, upper middle class town, whatever happens in there. But the, the, the reality of it is, is no matter where police officers or first responders are working, they're going to see some crap. Uh, my particular incident happened on July 16th, 2013. And it always starts out the, the slowest night possible. And that's what it was. I pulled up next to my partner. We went car to car. I'm like, God, you know, just anything come in. I, all I want is an alarm, something. Just get me out of the car. I don't want to sit in the car all day. So I, we used to have to do these uh, plaza checks, like little strip mall checks. I go over there and call comes over the radio. Start heading to this address. There's an open 911 call. So an open 911 call, somebody dials 911, they'll throw the phone down, and we have to respond to every single 911 call that comes in. Make sure somebody's not being held hostage or something like that. We go flying up there, and I can tell you the route that I took. I can tell you the speed I took. My partner's right behind me, and we're trying to keep it quiet. It's about 10, it's a Wednesday night. It's about 10-something, so there's nobody on the road. We're, we're heading there. We get there, and it's a little townhouse complex, and you can hear the yelling inside. We don't know what's going on, but we can hear the yelling in, inside. Um, now the hair on the back of your neck starts to stand up. Right. It's, you know, you, you, when you're going lights and sirens to a call, you're always like, is this going to be the one? Is this going to be it? Right. But you never really fully believe it. Because nine times out of ten, you get there and it's a bullshit call anyway. Correct. So we make, you're making these little plans, and you've got to make these, these little plans on, on, a, on a dime. I mean, you don't have time to sit there and do a full drawn-out tactical plan so my partner goes around the back and I grab something from my car it's a it's called a Halligan bar it's like a fireman's crowbar and so our plan was I'm going to breach because it's in the middle of a townhouse complex so it's you can't get out on the sides you can only get out front or back I'm going to breach the door my partner's going to fully expecting the guy to run out the back whatever's going on in there so on a on a uh, signal I start whacking the door and this is a funny thing about police work is you see you see all these cop shows and you see them kicking in the door. Yeah, they kick one time and it yeah, flies time, open. Yeah. Bullshit. Yeah. Yes. Bullshit. They're all steel doors. You can't do it. I mean, but we reinforced. Know, yeah, we know how to do it. It's just it takes longer than you think. So I put the the crow in there and I'm I'm cracking it and I'm banging it because you can hear the other guy on the side as I'm banging it say, "Don't come in here. Don't come in here." And then I hear, "Bang, bang, bang." We don't know what the hell's going on inside. I heard somebody scream. I heard I heard the shots. What we found out is my my partner had exchanged gunfire with him through the door because what he was doing was he he was in a domestic dispute with his ex girlfriend. Guy actually lives somewhere around here in Florida, believe yeah, it or not. All the, um, all my do. Yeah, <laughs> this is where everybody goes. Yeah, uh, he was going to kill this woman with a nine millimeter Glock. As he's raising the gun, my partner exchanges gunfire with him. So we pull back. 
I was there with another officer who was standing behind me. We pull back and it's that holy shit moment. You're like, what the fuck just happened? You know, so you pull back a little bit. Other officers were showing up at the time, so I go around the back. Now, a townhouse deck, if I can give you a layout of it, it's about, like, say, nine by nine privacy decking all around. And we go up on the back deck, and there's a sliding glass door. I can see the victim. She's on the ground. She's terrified. Like, she is, she's this close to being killed. But we can't see the guy. So we set up on the deck. And I, I get over into the corner. Like if the, the entrance is on the left-hand side, I get over into the corner. Thinking I'm in a really good tactical position. Because I can see everything. I can see the victim over here. I can see everything over here. And our plan was, this is not the best plan in the world, but it was the only thing we had. We're going to throw a patio chair through the sliding glass door. We're going to make entry. And we're going to get the victim out. Because once the victim's out, it's game over. You know, he can stay in there for... 50 days. I don't give a shit. We throw the, we throw the, the chair through the window and bang. I see this muzzle flash. Now I'm about, say, six feet away. I see a muzzle flash. And anybody who's ever shot a gun, you get blowback. So the little grains of gunpowder, you feel them on your face. He was close enough to me, and I never saw him. He just, he, he was behind a wall and he kind of did one of these. I feel the gunpowder. I feel the bullet. The bullet actually missed my, my left ear by say a quarter of an inch, less than a quarter of an inch, what they suspect, because it hit something behind. And everything, it's, it's so strange when you have a critical incident because everything just slows down. There's, there's, there's so much clarity of thought. But what you find out real quickly is there's two types of people in this world. There's people who run towards danger, and there's people who run away from danger. So of the three of us on the deck, and there was one officer behind, I think that guy's still running. I'm not certain. Right. <laughs> he ran so, and he was a, he was a high-ranking officer. He ran so far away, left me for dead. Because now... He was going out to call for backup. That's he, what they usually say. Yeah, well, well he, no, he was actually going to call the chief, which was... The, it's a whole other thing that pissed me off so bad. The other guys retreated off the deck. The ones that were on, say, if I'm looking at the sliding glass there, they were on the left. And they should have retreated because there was danger. I couldn't. So all of a sudden, my tactical position that I thought was so good was the worst thing ever. You're stuck in the corner. I'm stuck in the corner, and I got a six-foot crawl through the danger zone in order to get out. So after the shots rang out, I hit the ground. And there's glass all over the ground, so I fall directly on my forearms. And I still have glass in my forearms to this day, but I see, I look down. And again, very clear thought. I don't know whether I'm shot. I see blood. I hear people yelling behind me going, are you shot? And I said, I don't know. I, I really didn't know at that point. Your, your adrenaline's flowing so much. I mean, if you see like cop dramas or you know, the, the real life ones like Cops or, or one of those shows, they'll say like, guy will say, I think I'm hit. Yeah, your adrenaline's flowing so much you don't know if you're hit or not. I yeah. felt like a like a dull pain in my shoulder, but it was it was I hit I think I hit a chair on the way down or something stupid like that. But you want to talk about slowing down? Cops will take their keys, their car keys, and they'll put them on the antenna to their mic. I hit the ground so hard my keys popped off. Without I went and picked up my keys, put them back on my microphone, and I'm under fire, fully expecting this guy to come out. Now at this time. Uh, you start thinking about certain things. It's, it's literally a, 
two or three second window. But you, you have such, everything's in slow motion that I start thinking about my kids. At the time, I had a three-year-old. Uh, I had a seven-month-old or six-month-old. And these kids are, I'm figuring I'm, I'm going to die. Because right. like, it's, it's going to be a hail of bullets. He already shot at a cop twice. So why wouldn't he shot at, shoot at him a third time? They're going to grow up without a father. My oldest will sort of remember me. My youngest will never remember me. I think about my wife and my wife having to raise these two kids on her own. And then I was like, all right, well, you know what? If I'm going to die, let's do it. Let's do it. So I get in a prone position, which is on your stomach with your gun drawn, ready to go. Just waiting for the guy. Never saw the guy once. Never once saw him other than the muzzle flash. And I'm there for 20, 30 seconds. And all this just clear, clear thinking goes through your head. Fully prepared, knowing, all right, I'm, 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 this is my time. I'm cool with it. Uh, yelling back and forth between the guy, come out, come out. And he's not moving. He's not talking. So he's still a threat. The guys behind me, the guys that didn't run away, uh, one of them was uh, Sergeant Terry West. The other one was Officer Jason Hyder. They stood by and they did their jobs and they were able to lift back of my belt and get me out and just sort of assist me because I was in such a bad position. I'm six foot three, you know, I'm 230 pounds. I don't move all that quick. I'm not built for speed. I get out and then it's a July night. You sure it's 230? Hmm? You sure you weigh 230? I think you're you're packing a lot more than that. Your head weighs 230. The... uh, I'm able to get off, and then we hold perimeter for two two hours, fully expecting this guy to come out suicide by cop. We're going to light him up. Um, but in this melee, in this confusion, we're able to get the victim out. The victim gets out. So now, hey, listen, danger's done. We did our jobs. And you're able to decompress a little bit while you're holding perimeter, going, holy shit, did that really just happen? It It, it, it was crazy. But that's not even the worst part of the story. Because you hear all these things that cops go through. They get mentally screwed up by different critical incidents. You never think, hey, listen, I'm stronger than that. I, I can deal with this stuff. About two, you know, I get, I get out. I go to the hospital. And my wife, I didn't even have my cell phone at, ta- at the time. So I had to borrow an EMT's phone. I left my cell phone in my car. I had to borrow an EMT's phone because all the wives talk. And, uh, you know, I didn't want her hearing from somebody else. Hey, there was an officer involved shooting. She knows I'm working that night. I call her and I say, look. Tricia, you know what? I was in a shooting. I'm okay. I'm going to the hospital. I'm not shot. I just got to get some glass removed from my arm. No big deal. And they said, okay, I was working Thursday that night. You can have Thursday off and just come back Monday. I'm like, cool. I got a full day weekend. This is beautiful. This is beautiful. I go home from the hospital. I'm so amped up. So I go out. I even go out for a run. And then I finally get some sleep. I get like three or four hours of sleep. And then you wake up to the 50 different phone calls that, yeah. you, that you get from people. Everybody's curious, you know. What we, happened? What happened? We're like a sewing circle when it comes to police world. Everybody wants to know what's ha- what happens on a, on a hot call. So my wife and I go to the movies, and we're watching a comedy. But in the comedy, there was like a loud bang. And I just like shit my pants. I can't move. I start hyperventilating. And I don't want to concern my wife so I say hey look I'm just gonna go to the bathroom I'll be back I can't go back into the movie theater I'm like what the fuck is going on with me that weekend my parents lived in uh, Atlantic City Uh, so we go down to see them bring kids down with them you know we got some time off on the way home and this is this is the sort of the progression 
you start having nightmares the night before, so you're not thinking right because you just died. My son, my three-year-old, spills chocolate milk on his car seat. It's like, it's three-year-old. I flipped out. Like, I started screaming at him. Like, I couldn't control myself. That ride home was the worst ride home ever. So when I got home, I knew there was something starting to go seriously, seriously wrong. I called uh, cop to cop, and they got me some help. But it didn't stop there. Like, I couldn't sleep. Nightmares started going on. All this stuff is going through my... And, of course, this is a long period of time until probably about a month after the shooting, I had enough. Like, I really just was broken. I, my, it was progressive. My son my son points a little toy gun at me once. He's three years old. He's playing with a Nerf gun. I flipped out. I grabbed the gun right in front of him, calmly snapped it in two, threw it in the garbage. And then I saw the look on his face. I walked out after I saw the look in his face, and I left the house, and I didn't come back for three days. I slept in the woods. Because then you start to get paranoid because you're not sleeping. And this stuff's going on in your head. Lived in the woods for three days. Turned my cell phone off. And, but here was the weird thing. So at, when I was on, I never carried my off-duty weapon off uh, when I wasn't working. I never carried. I started carrying my gun because I started getting real paranoid. And I, co- I finally come home. And, and one night, I just, it's two in the morning, I'm not sleeping. I go in my office and I said, you know what, this is it. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not doing this shit anymore. I'm putting my family through hell. I'm, I'm a different person. I can't handle this stuff. And you feel broken. You feel so weak. When I'm in my office, I had a little Chief Special 38 Smith & Wesson. Nickel plate is beautiful gun. Um, I take the gun. In my mouth it goes. I'd recently qualified with that gun. And... Um, you know, so I could still taste. I can still taste to this day the gunpowder on the end of that muzzle. I can feel the the metal touching my teeth. And anything anybody knows anything about guns, it's a double action gun. So once you cock that hammer that, that hammer back, it's go time. It's uh, the lightest. You sneeze, it's going to fire. I got it in my mouth, and I'm I'm closing my eyes, and all I'm crying. All I'm waiting to do is just somebody give me some reason. I don't want to do this. Somebody give me a reason not to do this. And I must have been down there for 20 minutes just going through everything, like you know, say, telling people I'm sorry in my head. I'm sorry to my kids. I'm sorry to my wife. I'm, my grandfather who was the most important person in my life. He'd been gone. And say, I'm sorry. I'm not living up to your, to your, to your uh, hopes for me. And, and then I, the whole incident replays in my head. It's like a movie. It just replays in my head. And I just... I had a moment of clarity when I started thinking about my kids, where I just took the gun out of my mouth. I put the gun on the ground, and I stared at it for what seemed like an hour. But at that, that moment, I knew I had to get my gun out of my house because this was not the end. And there were other attempts of suicide after that. Um, I was ready to, to make a permanent solution to a temporary condition. That's what I didn't understand at the time. And throughout this time, alcohol, you'll do anything to numb the pain. Alcohol, they, they, would give, they, they medicate you. They give you Klonopin. They give you Lexapro. They give you the antidepressants or anti-anxiety. And while you're taking the Klonopin, you're drinking. I mean, you, which is, I don't know if you know anything about Klonopin. You do not drink on Klonopin. Right. It just intensifies. But the way I looked at it is, hey, you made my liquor bill go down. You know, I'm taking a couple Klonopin, taking some drinks. It's intensified. Cheap date. Yeah. It ultimately ends up me going to rehab, 
And here's the thing. I, I went to this place called the Princeton House, and it's a great place. It's for, they, they, they have a cops program in there. Here's what I learned about going to rehab. I'm not an alcoholic. These guys, they're, they're, they're right. alcoholics. Like, I just have a problem. I'll, I'll get through the problem. And it went on like that. It went on like that until finally I tell my story in, in group therapy. And once I told my story, um, that armor that I was t- talking about earlier, a piece pops off. Now, if you, you're, work, you, you're in shape, so you're a workout guy. What happens if you did a 20-year 20, a 20 squat and all of a sudden you take that barbell off your back? You're like, wow, this feels pretty good. I'm kind of light now. And I started figuring it out that, you know, I've been numbing this pain for so long, and that, I don't think that was the right way to do it. But in walks this guy one day. Now, Mike Fallis, your new name is Fallis, by the way. <laughs> hey, thanks. You, I've been you, called worse. <laughs> you can thank Matt for that one. Yeah. Uh, in walks this guy. Now, I had known him for about 25 years at this point because I used to work with his brother before I was a cop. And I would know him to say hi to him, but I see him. I'm like, hey, Mike, what's going on? He's like, yeah, you know that, that Lynnhurst shooting? That, that was me. And that, that's, but I saw that look in his eye. Could I, I could identify it. You know, when you, when you were away, when you were in prison, and you see somebody that, that looked at the people that are just beaten and broken, you can identify because you've been there at some, some level. I saw him walk in there, and I saw that look in his eye. I'm like, brother, you're going, on a, you're going on a ride now, and I'll be walking alongside with you, but I can't help you. I can just tell you what I know. I'm, I'm about a year, year away from my shooting at this point when I see him. And then he comes in with his story. So you, you got to realize something. They say that cops are close-knit people, you know, and, you know, thin blue line, all that stuff. When you're involved in a, in a critical incident like that, a cop will come up to you and say, I know what you're going through. You got no fucking clue what I'm going through. Unless you've been through that, you have no clue what we're going through. That's why when, when I ran into Kevin at group therapy... That, that's what helped me the most. And I'll get to, my, get to my story in a minute, but that's what helped me the most because this group therapy is all cops that have been in critical incidents, whether it be in, in shootings or... Yeah, I mean, we had a couple of them that... It's, it's basically close to death. And so you get diagnosed, we get diagnosed with PTS. And, and everybody will call it PTSD, but we've, we've since learned to drop the D because it's not a disorder. It's a, it's a brain injury. And PTS, my definition of PTS is knowing you're about to die and then not dying and having to live with it afterwards. And that's what everybody in this group goes through. By the way, this, you have a bunch of cops in a room who have been through critical incidents. Some of the humor that goes back and forth. <laughs> if anybody ever got a hold of those text messages, I'd, I'd be, you'd, I'd be asked, coming to you and say, hey, Matt, what do I do? I'm going to, I'm going to jail. Right. And what do I do? What do I pack? Yeah, what do I pack? <laughs> Tell me, do I got to like, take my asshole shut or something? You know, that's, that's my main concern. But Mike... Mike him and I just clicked when, when that happened because I knew what he was going through because I had been there from a place of understanding. And my, my job now, and with, with Mike, my mission now is to identify those problems and go with it and, and help people go through it. Because if I don't, that's a really a wasted opportunity. You know, there is help out there for, for people that are involved in shootings. You know, like Kevin said, Cop to Cop, it's a great uh, organization that helps people that are that are having mental health issues. But nothing's better than getting together with another cop that has done the same thing that you have. You know, you, you could sit there in front of a, a therapist and tell this therapist all day. 
and they have no He's clue. He's got no clue what's going on. I had, a, I had a therapist, one of who we talk yeah. about him quite often. He told me, he goes, hey, you were a cop. Didn't he expect to get shot at? Well, no. The, the statistic is like less than 0.05% of cops in the country get shot at. 0.01 get actually shot. And less than that even get killed. But it's still tragic when it happens. But Mike's Mike's shooting in Lynnhurst, yeah. that, that was that was a little different than mine. Right. It was a little different than mine. It was uh, September 16, 2014. It was just after midnight, a little, a little after 2 o'clock in the morning. Um, again, like Kevin said, a slow night. It's Monday night into Tuesday morning. Monday night football was over, so the crowds, you know, the bars were pretty much emptied out. And now there's really not much to do. You know, Lynnhurst is in a... It doesn't have any highways in it. I mean, we're surrounded by highways, but we don't have any highways that run through it. Um, so it's pretty quiet time. You know, it's when we catch up on our reports and, you know, just catch up with the guys and, you know, see how their weekend was and whatnot. So a little after 2 o'clock, one of our neighboring towns um, puts out what they call a bolo, be on the lookout. Um, they said that uh, two males were trying to break into a car in the town, one town south of us. Um, the owner of the house had cameras on the house and why she saw the, the camera at two o'clock in the morning, I have no idea, but she sees these two guys trying to break into her car. She comes running outside. She scares them away. They jump in a black SUV. They take off. They give us a description of the black SUV. Uh, one of our guys sees it, tries to pull it over. Guy takes off on him, leaves him on a chase through town. Our guy winds up losing it, you know, losing a vehicle. He broke off the chase. Now, while he's in this chase... It, the, you want to talk about adrenaline? Your adrenaline is going a million miles an hour. And you know, you, you get, go through enough of these different chases that this is not going to end good. Either he's going to get away or, or it's going to be really bad when it ends. All right. You know, and, you know, and, and then a lot of details started coming out. Um, you know, vehicles carjacked earlier in the night at gunpoint. From Newark, which is... Uh, As you're pursuing it, that's what you, yeah. you're now learning. That you're not, you know, one of the guys got the plate. I'll right. never forget. It was Hotel Yankee 8170. Um, guy got the plate. And once they got the plate, you know, they, they start running it and everything else. And, you know, then they figured out it was carjacked. Like I said, at gunpoint. Uh, they were trying to break into cars. After our guy breaks off the pursuit, the guy doesn't know his way around town. Because he could have hit one of the local highways and he would have been long gone. But the guy went up staying into town. One of our guys sees, sees the car again. Goes to pull him over. So he's chasing him through some side streets, and he hits the one main road in our town. And uh, they were traveling northbound. Right now it's 2.25 in the morning. Nobody on the road on a, you know, Monday night into early Tuesday morning. They're, they're doing probably 90 miles an hour. Generally, if it's like during the day, we would have called off that pursuit because it's, you know, too dangerous to the public. But there was nobody there, so we kept the pursuit going. They're coming southbound. Um, like I said, nobody else on the road. I, I see my guys' overhead lights, you know, chasing a guy, and I'm looking down at the road. Now, I, I turn onto the street, and I'm coming southbound. I'm coming towards the pursuit. I'm watching my guys' overhead lights so I could kind of gauge the distance to see how far they were because what happened is the, the black SUV, the guy turned out his headlights. I was waiting for him to dip down one of the side streets. I didn't see any headlights. I got fixated on my guys' overhead lights. So I see they're getting closer and closer, and he's giving updates, and I'm just staring at, at his overhead lights. All of a sudden, I look back down at the road. 
the SUV is in my lane of travel doing 90 miles an hour coming at me head on. If he hit me, I would have been gone. I mean, I would have been long gone. I just, I had just turned onto the street, so I'm not even doing 15, 20 miles an hour. I was just casually, you know, strolling up just to see, you know, to get a look at everything. He comes at me at 90 miles an hour. I turn out of the way. He turns out of the way. He missed me by about five feet. He was going so fast, he lost control of the car. The car was swerving. All How he kept control of the car, I have no idea. Uh, he winds up hitting, there was a construction site there. He hits a construction, sand, one of those big yellow sand barrels. He hits the sand barrel, the car turns sideways. Another car came in, pulled in right behind him. Driver puts the car in reverse, starts ramming a police car. Now the tires are spinning. Roads start filling up with smoke. So we come up onto the passenger. When he hit the car, turned you know, sideways. We came up on a pursuit, uh, come up right to the passenger side of the window. Draw down on the guy, show me your hands, show me your hands, show me your hands. He had his left. Now, again, the tires are spinning. We're getting my, the whole left side of my body was filled with burned rubber, um, what I call road shrapnel, like the road was breaking up. I was getting, you know, broken up concrete all up my body and everything. I actually had burn marks on my face from the burnt rubber. We pull up on the passenger side, start yelling to him, show me your hands. I'll, I'll never forget it to this day. He had his left hand on the steering wheel, reaching down between the driver's seat, staring me right in the face, just staring me dead in the face. He pulls up like this. We went up shooting him. I, I saw a bullet go right in the guy's forehead from right across the car. And then his body just, body just slumped down, his foot pressed onto the gas, you know, his whole body weight went onto the gas pedal. At that point, the tire started really spinning. Um, I figured at one point, I remember seeing a key in the ignition. So I'm thinking we have to shut this car off at some point. So now at this point, the tire was spinning so much, the tire blew out. The passenger side rear tire blew out. So now it's the rim on the ground. Tire spinning, or the rim is spinning. Now I'm getting just nothing but metal sparks into my face. So I take out my baton. I'm shielding my eyes. I break the window out. We call it break and rake. You break the window and you rake it out to get all the glass out. I go to reach in to shut the, the car off. Passenger popped up right in my face. I had no clue there was even a passenger in the car. So my definition of PTS, what I said earlier, it's knowing you're going to die and not dying and having to live with it. At that moment, and I've spoken to Mike in depth about this, what I believe is that his, is his onset to PTS. Because if that passenger had anything, had a knife, had a gum wrapper, he's gone. He said he could have kissed me. He was that close to me. Yeah, he's gone. What happened was it came out later, but they made a pact to do anything they had to do to get away. The passenger knew the driver had a gun on him. So when we came up on a passenger side, passenger just reclined the seat and he laid back. So we actually fired right over him. Never even knew he was there. So he pops up in up my face. I draw down on him. Show me your hands, motherfucker. You're going to get the same thing he got. So he just very com you know compliant, put his hands up. Um, I had a guy come. We, have, we carry ballistic shields in our car. Now, at this point, cops were coming from everywhere. So there must have been like 10 cop cars around. Two o'clock in the morning, 
we're the only game in town, you know, so right. all the other towns are starting to fill in the area with it because everybody wants to try to get involved in something at that point. Which is crazy because they really don't understand what getting involved in this means. Yeah. Not only mentally, but now you're going to have to go through the court systems because cops, we're open to indictment just like everybody else. Yes, we have to follow attorney general guidelines on use of force policies, but if we do something wrong, guess what? We're going to jail. Right. Plus now you get a log of all the cops that came there. You know, you usually get the junior guy and he gets out the pen and pad and he's got to log every cop, what time they got there and everything else. So, so you're actually documented to being at that scene, whether you did something or not. So like I said, we carry ballistic shields in our car. One of the cars came up. I told him to grab the ballistic shield, hold down on the, on the passenger. I wound up reaching in with my baton and I, I actually got my baton into the key loop, the key ring of the keys. And end up shutting the car off. Now, at that point, the, like I said, a lot of it I remember clearly, but I don't remember the timeline of it. I take my baton out again to get the passenger out. The, wheel, the wheels are still spinning at this point. I'm shielding my eyes. So I hadn't shut the car off before we got the passenger out. The wheel's spinning. Sparks are coming up in my face. I take my baton. I go to open the door. The door handle flies off. It's like, you know, what else could go wrong at this Any, point? Anything that can go wrong will go wrong. So now draw back down on the guy, you know, show me your hands. The cops came up. They want, they had to drag him out of the passenger side window. He got out without a scratch on him. That's when I reached in and actually shut the car off. So now, now fun, the funny thing is about the passenger is... The passenger gets out and gets gets out of custody or something. At this time, Mike is in group therapy, so I know I'm in contact with him. The passenger ends up getting shot in where was it? Newark. Newark. He gets shot in Newark, and we all sort of we're sitting around in group therapy. You know, and I think it came out like the morning that we had group therapy. Right, it night. was because yeah. we were all sitting looking at Mike's side. I like, where, where the hell were you last night? Did you yeah. sort of take care of business? So what, what happened was they were both gang members. Yeah. Um, when we got the passenger out, he went to uh, the state police, took custody of him and took him down to one of their barracks and, and interviewed him. And he, he gave up the whole story. You know, we carjacked the car in Newark. We went, we were trying to break into a car. Some lady came out of the house. You know, we took off. The cop led us on a pursuit. He goes, we made a pact that day to do anything we could do to get out of there. He goes, I knew we had a stolen gun in the car. He said, I knew there was going to be a firefight, so I put down a seat, told the whole story, ratted out his friend and everything else. He goes into jail. As soon as he got to jail, he changed his story, of course. You know, he told him that he told everybody in jail that uh, the driver got knocked out from the accident. We went over to the driver's side. We opened up the door. We started beating him up. Then we shut the door. We ran around to the passenger side and shot him. So that's the story his family's getting. Right. So, you know, totally untrue. But he went to jail, told his whole story. He wound up bailing out of jail. When he got back into Newark, they found out that he ratted out his friend. He was walking down the street one day. A guy just walked right up to him, put a bullet right in his forehead, killed him right there. Right, another gang member. Yeah. Protecting each other. But you got to understand something. Mike took somebody's life. And, and you see movies and stuff, and everybody, they shoot him and... It's no big deal, or they're they go right back to work. They go right back to work. It's not like that. You took somebody's life, you know. Unless you're a cold-hearted killer or a sociopath or a psychopath, that's going to affect you in some way. 
And, yep. and people don't understand. Just because we're cops doesn't mean like they dehumanize everybody. They dehumanize prisoners. Okay, you're you you were in jail, so all of a sudden you're a piece of shit when you get out. But that's not true. You have a mother, you have a father, you have people in your life that love you. You have kids or whatever it may be. You're still a human being. You still have human feelings. I always say that. That that's one of the things that pains me to today is I always wanted to meet his family. Listen, I know he's got a mother that loves him. I know he's got a grandmother that loves him. I know he's got a sister that loves him because they were all over the media. You know, they were in the paper every day saying, how could they do this to my son, my grandson, my brother? You know, he didn't deserve this. He wasn't such a bad guy. Meanwhile, he just, he was 23 years old, just did three years in state prison for the same thing. But he was a good guy. You know, it was 2.27 in the morning. He was just out with his friends, you know. But being yeah, a father. In a stolen vehicle. In a, yeah, but, you know, and, and that's what they said too. Uh, a stolen vehicle doesn't, doesn't relate to a death sentence. But, but they, they, don't, they don't understand the whole story. Right. You know, they didn't see it the way I see it. They're only getting the media story of it. And of course, the media is going to portray the cops to look like bad guys every time. Right. You know, one, one of the articles that came out in the paper, I'll never forget, I, I have a picture of it on my phone. It says, what we do know is uh, police chased a vehicle and shot the suspect. What we don't know is why the cops shot at a guy who was in a car that was surrounded and there was no escape route. There was an escape. The escape route was going to be right over me. It was either him or me that night. But again, the family never heard that side of the story or doesn't want to believe it. And that, that pains me to today. We all gravitate towards the, the, the stories that we want to hear. You know, it depends on every history is written by from perspective of the victors. You know, I'm sure people in Nazi Germany had very good reasons for doing what they were doing in their mind. Right. You know, just like his parents. And another thing is, is, is we're both parents. I'm not sure if you're a parent or not, but I'd do anything for my kids. I, and I'm always going to believe my kids to some extent. You know, I'm always going to have their back. So I, I don't I, think I ever heard a parent say, yeah, my son's a real scumbag. No, you no. Know, they're, they're always going to fight for it. And, and Mike and I have spoken about this. The, to, to, de, to, to look at it from a parent's perspective, it's not that you say what they're doing is right, but you, you understand it. You understand the pain that they're going through. They just lost a kid. And that's, that's a hard thing to, to deal with. But like Kevin was saying, you know, when you see these TV dramas about police and everything, they're involved in shootings and, you know, even movies and all that. They're, they're shooting at this one and then they jump in a car and they go, they shoot. It's not like that. No. There is, when I tell you, I was so numb after the shooting. Like I said, I just saw, just put a bullet in a guy's head from four feet away. You know, Kevin said, unless you're some psycho you know, a bloodthirsty killer or something, it's going to affect you, you know. And now you start thinking about everything. You start thinking about, am I going to be able to work again? You know, was I justified in doing this? What are my kids going to think? What's my chief, what's my wife going to think? I was married back then. What's my wife going to think? What's, you know, what's my chief going to think? What are, you know, all of that's going through your mind. Now you have the whole aftermath of it. Like you said, police cars came from everywhere. There had to be 30 police cars there. A New Jersey State Trooper wound up getting into pursuit, and he wound up firing that night. And where my, where my town is, it's situated right between the New Jersey Turnpike and the Garden State Parkway. Both of them run pretty much the length of the state. And there's a highway at the end of my town, which is in the town next to us, that 
could hit both of those highways. Now, mind you, Mike lived in ta- the town he worked in, right. so it's a big deal. And my kids were going to school there. Right, so everybody knows. It's not like he's working four or five towns over. Everybody knows what's going on. They know there was a shooting last night. So now Jersey State Trooper is involved. The troopers, they're on the turnpike in the parkway. They hear one of their guys that were involved. They all come up. There had to be 50 trooper cars there. Cars from every surrounding town there. But that bit you in the ass, though. Yeah. Because whenever the state true, so when when there's a police back then, I mean, you're talking about 2015, 2014, 2014. So back then, any shooting went to the attorney general's office of that county, or, or, or the prosecutor's, prosecutor's office. office of that county. When there's state troopers involved, it goes to the attorney general's. And the bigger government you get, the slower the process. Right. Like my process was pretty quick when when they're going through grand jury and all that stuff, because every shooting goes to grand jury. But with, when troopers are involved and the AG's involved, now all of a sudden it just all slows down. And you're, Mike just said, he's fallen under the disguise of, hey, I might go to prison for this. Even right. though you- I was going to say, does it become more political at that point? Yeah, because- further up the chain? Because there's optics involved. Right. You just had a guy, a, a young black man, who got shot by police. Think about the optics. Think about if that happened today. Mike yeah. would have been screwed. Well, you, you know what it was? It was right after- if you ever you remember the Eric Garner chokehold situation, yep. it was right after that where Black Lives Matter just started coming to the forefront. I guess you could say, right? You know, now and and listen, I say all the time, I don't care if that guy was green. You know what he was doing was wrong. It was it was either me or him. I don't don't care who he was. I I didn't even realize. You know, you're not thinking at that point. Oh, you know, he's black. He must be doing something wrong. Or you know. I had what he was doing was wrong. I don't care what color you are, right? You know, but it just so happened he was a black guy, and and you know, like I said, the, the racial tensions at that point were just starting to really get bad. So we we're waiting for, and that's the other thing. You know, we we're waiting for repercussions from that. Because um, gang members are going to protect the other gang members, so it's very it's it's not uncommon. We saw this in numerous towns throughout New Jersey that. You kill a gang member, all of a sudden the gang members put out a hit on the cop. Now, there was a shooting in Jersey City. A guy named Melvin Santiago was killed by a gang member. He executed. He was at a CVS or Walgreens or something. Guy came up, shot him right in the car. They found the guy who did it, the cops, and they got into a a gunfight with him. They ended up killing the guy. So now the guy was a blood, I believe. He was a blood gang member. So now the Bloods put a hit out on the Jersey City cops, all of them, to the point where the Crips, because they're rival gangs, the Crips are actually, they actually spoke up and said, don't worry, police, we got your back. So now you're getting protected by the Crips because it's a political gang war. Right. It's crazy. That's crazy stuff. But Mike had a, had a murder indictment hanging over his head for, what, 15 months? Yeah. See, that, that's the other thing that people don't understand. You just, you think that, you know, once you're involved in a shooting, they give you off the rest of the night, you go back to work. Right. That happened at 2 o'clock on September, 2 o'clock in the morning, September 16th. September 17th, we had to go meet with our attorneys. Every so, shooting, you have yeah. to get an attorney. You have to get an, you have to get an attorney or you're going to go to jail because there's going to be lawsuits and everything else. September 18th, I went to the state police and gave my statement to the state police, you know, all about the shooting, what happened, and everything else. Uh, Again, that was September 18th, 2014. 
everybody kept saying, did a great job. You know, you did what you're supposed to do. You know, you did what you're trained to do. You know, I was on a SWAT team. I'm a submachine gun op- operator on a SWAT team. Was very qualified at what I did. And everybody kept saying, perfect. You know, picture perfect shoot. You know, you did nothing wrong, but, but we have to present it to grand jury. All right, when's grand jury going to be like next month? They said, well, it could take up to a year. So now... When it goes to the attorney general's office, they have to go through it. There were, there were four officers that went up shooting that night. So they have to get all the evidence. They have to get your... your the ballistics, your, all the ballistics need to be your checked. Casing, who actually Your casing's off shot. the ground, and then they take your gun, and then they fire to see who... You know, they, they compare the... the striations the, and the bullets. Striations and the bullets and everything. So it, it takes a while. It took... 53 weeks to the day. September 16th, 2014, we got cleared by the grand jury, September 23rd, 2015. In that 53 weeks, one year and one week, I didn't hear from the attorney general's office one time. They don't call to tell you what's going on with the investigation. They don't call for any you know additional questions or anything like that. You hear nothing. Meanwhile, was, meanwhile he's going through these legal problems, and he's... Think about think about this from a stress perspective. You're going through all these different legal problems, and he's starting to show some really unhealthy behavior coming at him. And so he had he had my stress plus one. So getting involved in a critical incident, feeling all the feelings that you're feeling, and then having to worry about going to jail, it, it was rough. It was really rough. I was sleeping usually about two or three hours at a clip. You know, I'd, I'd lay in bed at nine o'clock just so I could know I could get three hours sleep, wake up at 12 o'clock. I was sleeping in my basement. It was real bad nightmares. Um, you don't want to affect your family. Waking up, right. in a, waking up in a cold sweat, not knowing if I pissed myself. That's how sweaty I was. You know, the bed was soaked. So I just figured I'd lay down on the couch down in the basement. You know, I got a TV in there, bathroom, refrigerator, you know, finished basement. So I'd lay down at 9 o'clock, wake up at 12 o'clock. Now you're wide awake because your mind's spinning. Go to the refrigerator, have a beer, lay back down, fall back to sleep at one o'clock, sleep till maybe two, three o'clock, go back to the refrigerator, have another beer. And I'd be getting up at five o'clock in the morning and then I'm up for the day, you know. Are you able to work this whole time? Or no, you still I, was, working? I was out on workers' comp. For 15 months? Uh, no, fif- uh, 52, 53. 50, a, year and a, a year and a week. But that was, but you actually were because it took you beyond that to get retired. Yeah. Yeah. So I actually had to start using my own time after right. that. So workers' comp will only cover you for X amount of time. 52 right. weeks. Right, 52 One weeks. Year. So after that, you have to start burning. So there's a likelihood, and there are as many officers who do it, to get involved in these incidents where they can't go back to work. It's not that they don't want to. They can't. Like, I'd give my pension back tomorrow. I, I was able to retire with a pension. I'd give my pension back tomorrow to go be a, go be a cop again because I love that job. It was a life of service. And it wasn't the bad guys. It wasn't catching bad guys. It was helping little kids. Help! I can tell you a dozen calls where I left that call saying, you know what, I made an impact. But when you can't go back to work and all of a sudden you're going through legal issues and the doctors are telling you you can't go back, now your time runs out. There's a likelihood, and I know a lot of officers who go without pay. You got a family, you got a you got a mortgage, you got all these different responsibilities. How are you going to pay? How are you going to pay for everything? So there's that added stress that goes on to it. Well, after the grand jury. You know, after 
what they call no build, which means, you know, they're not charging you, still took another six months to get the pension, you know, to go before the pension board. Because at that point, I, re- I decided I was going to retire. So, you know, I'm not, I, I couldn't picture what I went through in that year. I couldn't picture ever going through that again. And I, I told my chief right after the shooting, and my chief was great with me. I said, chief, I'm not going back to work until grand jury. I said, if, now, first of all, I was involved in a first fatal police shooting in Lynnhurst history. Never happened before. Nobody really knew what to do. And it's no fault of their own. You know, like I said, my chief was, my chief was the best. He was there. Anything I needed, he was right there. Um, but he'd never been through it. They've never been through it. Now, the state trooper that fired, like, right, at, right, after, right after the incident, and there was cops all over the place. Me and another guy from my department are just standing there saying, like, holy shit, you know, what just happened? When you're going through that, you don't think of, of nothing, the, the, like severity of the circumstances. You just, you, you pretty much go into react mode, you know, yeah, you're trying you're to make like it to robotic. the next minute. But after it, when, you, when everything starts to hit you, you start to decompress a little bit. We were just standing around going, like, what the fuck? Like, now what do we do? You know? State police were there, and believe me, they've they've had a ton of shootings in their career. They came up with a team of guys. Their trooper there that was fired that that one of firing that night. They got a circle around this guy, and you just see the whole circle walk out of the scene. Gone. Never saw the guy again. Never saw the guy again for a couple of weeks, and then we'd be, actually become good friends after that. But but nobody from Lynnhurst knew what to do. So I told my chief, I'm not going back to work. Until grand jury's over. I can't go back to work with murder indictment hanging over my head. What's, if this same situation presents itself, if I hesitate and I'm killed, fuck it, I'm not here to worry about it. If I hesitate and my partner gets killed, I'm not going to go ring a doorbell and say, you know, I fucked up, daddy's dead. So I'm not doing it, you know, because it, it, it just weighs on you constantly. It's just that burden that's always in your mind. You know, you just took a life and now... You, you did what you're you're paid to do, what you're supposed to do, what you're trained to do. I felt like a I felt like a suspect for 53 weeks, and I it just it wore on me. I mean, took its toll on my marriage. You know, going through a divorce. Um, took its toll on my kids. You know, like Kevin said, I think it was seven minutes after the shooting. Linhurst is a small town. You got the grapevine there. They know that there was a shooting in town. So I picked up my cell phone and I called my, my wife. I said, listen, I've been involved in a shooting. I'm okay. I'm going to the hospital. Because you're always told that as a cop, when you're involved in a shooting, get out of the scene, go to the hospital. You take your blood temp, your uh, blood pressure, all that stuff. My wife decides she wants to come up to the scene. She grabs her sister who lives two doors down, her husband... I had like a family reunion at, at the right. crime scene. I'm like, tell them, just get out of here. You know, I got to go to the hospital. Go to the hospital. I come back that night and we have a, a command post. And the chief said to me, he goes, uh, he goes, what do you want to do now? I said, chief, you know what? I said, I, I really just want to go home. I said, I want to go see my kids. Because my kids were in the school district at that point. They're going to know there's a shooting and they're going to know I was working. I said, I just want them to see me. So before I went to the hospital, I told my wife to go home. I said, listen, when the kids wake up, tell them. 
tell tell them the whole story because they're going to get you know yeah, they bad. Want, they want to hear from their they don't hear it from their friends. They're going to get shit stories in school, yeah. and then you know then they're going to you know people people are going to say, oh, your father shot someone. Like, baby, you know. So I said, go home and tell the kids. I'll go. I'll get home before they go to school, and I'll never forget it. And this is when I, this is what gets me the most. I walked in the house and my wife and kids were sitting at the table eating breakfast before school. And my kids came running up to me and just gave me like the biggest hug. And I I felt them both just like melt in my arms. And that was, that was one of the points I said, you know what? I I just can't do this anymore. I can't do this. I mean, what happens if I'm, if I'm back to work and I'm working at midnight, like Kevin said, I live right in the town. If I'm working at midnight and the kids hear sirens, you know, what are they going to be thinking? You know? Well, if he would have went back to work, and I've learned this over time, there's a couple things that are going to happen because we know officers who are involved in multiple, multiple incidents. You know, as an officer, like we were talking about earlier, where you see all these horrible incidents, you have a glass and it just starts getting filled with water and filled with water. And then you have a critical incident such as these, that glass just spills over. So if you, are, if you go back to work, you, young guys have an easier time on, uh, in general. They have an easier time because their glass isn't filled. They haven't you, seen they as haven't much seen at that as point. Much. But the older, the older guys have just seen all this stuff, and it, it spills over. So if you go back, you're going to become more aggressive. You're going to end up tuning somebody up for minor stuff because you see a threat in a different way than you did yesterday, pre-incident. So you're either going to get fired, you're going to go to jail, or you're going to be dead. I've heard this several times from, from different people, and I strongly believe that w- that was with me, and I'm pretty sure it's the same thing with Mike, where y- you're just hyper, hyper alert of anything, and you're going to think the next person coming down the street in a, without their headlights on because they forgot to put them on, oh, my God, it's a stolen vehicle. Here we go again. And you're ready. You know, that's, that's when you start getting in trouble. So you can't go back to work at that time. And now, and officers, officers are... Uh, I love my brothers and sisters in blue, but we're boneheads because too many of them, their primary identity be, is a police officer. And one day, being a police officer has an expiration date. One day that ends. Now what? Now what do you do? You just took my primary identity away. And that's why you'll see officers dying very soon after they retire. There's a uh, blue suicide is at an epidemic level where I think we're 1.7% per 100,000, and the national average, is, it varies between 1% and 1.2% of everything, you know, every type of profession in the world. So we're, we're always at a higher risk for this stuff because we're, that's who we become. We become that officer. We only hang out with cops. We only trust cops. If you're an outsider, we're not going to treat you the same way because you don't understand so that, it's, a, it's a dangerous situation, and it, it bothers me. So that's why Mike and I now, we deal with other officers because we've gotten through it. We deal with other officers who are involved in critical incidents, in first responders in general. And that's kind of the genesis of when we started this podcast. I started this podcast because I realized that I, my reaction to suffering was so wrong because I was constantly running away from and trying to numb it, and I used the prairie fire analogy. So years ago... I, I read stupid shit. I was, it was how to survive critical incidents or how to, vi- how to survive worst case scenarios. That's, that was, that's what the book was. And one of them in there was a prairie fire. So 
you know, in, in, in Florida or New Jersey, we don't have a whole lot of prairie fires, but the way to survive it is you run towards that fire because if you run away from it, the prairie fire gets bigger, 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 right. and it ends up consuming you. Now, if you run towards it, you'll get through it. You'll be scarred. You'll be charred, but you're going to get through it and you're going to be alive. Yeah, you're going to be in what's already been burned at the very least, and you're safe. You're safe. But police officers, when we go through these critical instances, we just numb it. They medicate us. We don't know how to deal with it when all you have to do is just go up to it and, and own it and embrace it. And, and we've had conversations, Matt, and, and that's one of the things that, that I really do admire about you is what you did, is, what you've done in the past, you've owned it. You're like, yep, yeah, I did this stuff. That's what I did. You don't, make a, you, don't, you don't try to hide it. You don't try to make excuses for what you did other than you like the lifestyle, which I can understand that. Right. But you've owned it. You know, this is what it is. If, if we can get people to own their damage, then they're going to see that, that on the other side of that damage, it's really a beautiful place. We, we've taken it upon ourselves, everybody that, well, not everybody, but a lot of, a lot of officers from New Jersey that were involved in, in shootings right. will reach out to someone from their department. Say, listen, clandestinely. I mean, it's not through any organization other than the Suffering Podcast or our nonprofit dental development project. That's that's all we do. We, we because someone needs to tell you what's going to happen. You know, your department could tell you, okay, you know, you they're going to take your gun. That's the other thing. They take your gun from you, which is emasculating at that point. You know, because now they're taking they, at the scene that night. They took my whole uniform, stripped me down in my underwear. I was standing in a command post in my underwear until they got me clothes. Not an uncommon event for Mike. Well, I did. I did get promoted three times. So. Yeah, that's listen. In, in New Jersey, here's how you get promoted: you dirty your knees. That's yeah. pretty much what it is. Just standing in a command post in my underwear. <laughs> but but we we yeah. we do reach out to these different towns now, and and we've helped quite a few people say, "Listen, here's what's going to happen." You know, and we take them step by step through what's going to happen, and I give them all my cell phone. I say, "Listen." You're going to start getting these weird feelings. You know, you're not going to know why you're thinking. Like Kevin was saying, he had a gun in his mouth. You know, part of post-traumatic stress is one of the one of the things that come along with that is suicide. I always say I, I was too much of a pussy to kill myself. Still am, thank God. But I went to bed every night thinking, you know what? If I don't wake up tomorrow morning probably wouldn't be such a bad thing. It's an awful feeling, and, it, and it's, it's, it couldn't be more wrong because when you're going through the deepest, darkest times of your life, it's so dark in there, you don't realize that there are other people walking alongside of you who have been through the same thing that can help you. They can see because they got, you know, they got night vision or whatever they, whatever they have, but you can't see that there's people walking alongside of them, and that's kind of what we do now. It's what we do with our show. We show them that... This there, there, there's other people there. You just can't see them because it's too damn dark until you get to the end, and there's a little bit of light, and it shines a shadow on them. Right. So um, we've been able to. We don't just highlight first responders because everybody's got their own damage. Everybody's got their own suffering. So the, I think one one of the the best shows we did was Gene. So Gene, yeah, Gene Halberger. Gene Halberger lost his son to suicide. He's actually changed my vocabulary. Uh, it's not commit suicide because you commit a crime. Right. So that was always common lexicon that I always came I think out everybody with. Everybody does. Yeah, he committed yeah, suicide. Yeah, he committed suicide. 
But you don't do that. It's very offensive to to people who do. And they, most of them, they won't come up to you and say, oh, you're an asshole for saying yeah, yeah. that. We, we've say, learned a lot of things that are offensive to yeah. what we say in our common they'll, vernacular. They'll say, no, it's it's you lose them to suicide. So Gene lost his son, 17-year-old son to uh, suicide after being bullied on Instagram. And, and he, in school. And in school, and he found them. He took, took one of his shotguns and found them in the back. The, the kid called his father that night and said, or that morning and said, Dad, I just want to tell you I love you. Yeah. But when Gene came in the studio, and we had to stop recording many times. Wait a second. I, I understand. You said he went and who went and found so, Gene went and found no, the, yeah. the kid? The, yeah. yeah. The kid called the went, father that morning. The father was at work. The, kid, son the, the son's name was Jimmy. The father is Gene. So Jimmy called Gene and said, Dad, I just want to tell you I love you. So he said, I'll be right home. By the time he goes home, he goes in the house and he sees the shotgun case open, goes running around back, and his son had just done it. So half his head's missing and he's doing. There's a gurgle. So yeah, when somebody when, gurgle. when somebody shoots themselves, it's not quick and painless most of the time. Because your heart's still beating yeah. and the blood's still flowing. Blood's coming out. They they they. It's this guttural groan coming out of them, and he saw his son doing that and it destroyed him. They're like it would any parent. Right. So. Gene comes in and he tells this just awful story that it's called the ultimate suffering. When he left our studio because he had let it out and we had to stop recording numerous times. Well, he, he never talked about it before. Yeah, he never, so he never went through any media. He, he just sort of took a liking to us. He came out of our studio and he had a four-hour ride home and he gives us a call and he says, you know what, that was the most peaceful ride home because he finally just gave that pain and suffering in his life with just a hug and said, you know what, I... I, I can release it. And since then, he's done it a couple other times, and he feels better. So there's something to it. Yeah, yeah. I'm not totally full of shit. Yeah. Maybe, <laughs> maybe a little bit. Yeah. Sometimes. Maybe a little bit. No, I can understand talking about uh, stuff that bothers you. you right. Know, it's, you know, it's, I, I, I mean, like just from like going to prison and, and talking about, you know, just different things as a child and different things that, you know, I, I had gone through and people that, you know, obviously people that I hurt and people that I lost you know, while I was in prison, like, it's funny because like the, so there was a psychiatrist. I went to a program called RDAP. And so you have to meet with like a psychiatrist. And so I had to meet with her all the time. RDAP. Like, I'm familiar with that yeah. program. The RDAP Dan, who's uh, uh, Dan Weil. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Dan, Dan Wise. Wise. Dan Wise. Yeah. So, um, I had, uh, so I would meet with them all the time and she used to say all the time, like, you know, look, if you talk about it, you'll feel better. You'll get, you'll get better at, telling the story at, or you'll get better at, at being able to talk about it and express it without breaking down and crying and getting upset. And so far I found that to be bullshit because, because I, to this day, like I, every time there are certain things I talk about, if they come up in the podcast or I talk about them immediately start crying, just immediately. Like just you tears were, me yeah. to this, like I could talk right now and I'd start tears would start coming down my face. And I know exactly what those things are. Like I'll, I'll steer clear of them and and I can it happens all the time I've never gotten better well, and, and we, we call those some people do though yeah we call those triggers yeah you know something will trigger you you know like Kevin said he went to a, a comedy movie heard a loud noise yeah you know right after my shooting my, my daughter was running track in high school it's starters pistol you know I had to look at the starter every time a race started one time I had my back to the starter when I first went and that starter pistol went off Almost ran out of ran right. out of the stadium. It, but the more you the more you tell it, 
The, it, there, there's, there's a lot of validity into what this art app program right. is telling you. Because the more you tell it, it just it's like a release. Yeah. It's not a desensitizing. Yeah. No, I always feel better directly afterward. Right. But you know, the problems still exist and they're still there. So for me, it's it's not over. You know what I'm saying? Think you know, certain it, things aren't over. But it'll ne- it, a lot of this will never be over. It's right. oh, it's part of who you are. It's part of one of your scars, or as we call it, one of your dents. Now, you know you. We call ourselves all dented individuals. We have a lot of dents in us. That's a dent that's going to stay with you for the rest of your life. It's it's all how you take that dent and work with it. Right. You know, it's how you you get over it, and that's and that's all part of what we did. You know, I was saying all the time. You know, they they were sending my department was sending me to all these therapists, and to me, it was just rehashing. It was going to tell the same story over and over. And the one therapist we talked about before had no clue what was going on. So he'd sit there and he, I'd tell him the whole story, and he said, "Well, how you feeling?" Well, you know, I feel. Told him all of my different feelings that I had, and he said, "Why are you feeling like that?" I said, you're the fucking one that's supposed right. to tell me why I'm feeling like that. So I was like done and over with him. But when you speak to another person who's, you would probably have a, a, a inborn camaraderie with somebody who came out of prison versus, you know, with us, we, we deal with things a little bit differently than the normal person. Like if you were to tell a story about something that made you tear up or made you start crying, right? Matt, it's going to be all right. All right, let's figure this out together. He starts crying because it's happened many times. Pussy, what are you doing? (laughs) It's happened many times. But again, it's going back to that dark humor where that's how, listen, I identify with what what you're feeling. I understand what you're feeling. So let's let's work this out together. It's the same thing. It's just said two different ways. Right. And that's how we we work through stuff. But the the funny thing about, you know, dented individuals is we, we can still operate. We can still move forward. We're just not as pretty as we once were, but we're still we're still functional. Right. And that's where that. So we started a nonprofit out of the the suffering podcast called Dental Development Project to help these people because we're doing all this stuff. So we're like, let's let's name it. Let's let's do it together. And so far, we've had a lot of success and on a small scale, but we've had a lot of success. Right. How did how do we even come up with that name? Oh, Christ. So he's going to make me give him accolades (laughs) about him coming up with a name because his ego is huge, Matt. And the slogan. I always say, listen, I combat that by saying I started the podcast prior to Mike coming on. He came on at episode, I don't remember what the episode was. Episode nine, yeah. thanks. Um, Highest downloaded episode. Yeah, yet, so anyway. he, I forget what the episode was. <laughs> but um, I always say our success today is because I brought you in. Right. Because It's all me. It's all me. I, I'm the genesis of everything. He was getting like four downloads like before. Yeah. Right? It was yeah. him, his wife, his kids. But when yeah. he came in, it was funny because he came in and I'm like, oh, you know what? That There's something there. There's there's some meat there. And yeah, then, you have a good, yeah, you have a good uh, chemistry with uh, certain people. Right, right. And, and, and you know, you're sitting down in front of somebody who you, I mean, we, we had dinner last night, but I don't know you. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And you have to sit down in front of somebody and, and make them feel comfortable in 10 minutes, five minutes, 15 minutes, however long you sit around and, and bullshit. It's, it's, it's tough. With two people there, it's really very easy. Like what you do is 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 different than ours because you you have you're alone doing it. I, it's it's tough. People don't realize that. Well, um, I, 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 I mean, I I only disagree because I'm lucky because the the people that I'm typically sitting across from 
were in prison. Mm-hmm. And and just like you said, yeah. there's there is that there is that a common bond. Yeah, exa- yeah, absolutely. You know, you get there and you've been through a shared experience, and and so you there's just there's just this immediate connection and and um, you know trust and you know you sit down with them and you start talking and you have shared experience that, that shared experience is, it, it changes everything. Well, it's like Kevin, it's the same thing with like law enforcement. You know, we just could just look at each other and yeah, yeah. kind of give you some like, yeah, I know what you're talking about. <laughs> same thing with you and, you know, and, and other inmates. You know, you have that that experience and you could play off of each yeah. other like that. It's nice. It's it's not. You know, this, this one, you know, there's so many things like you don't have to break down and explain what this means. Yeah, you just talk in your typical vernacular and they totally understand mm-hmm. as opposed to like when you said the, you know, the bolo, like I know what a bolo is, but most people don't know. And yeah. so you're like, what that means is this. And what that means, we'll see when, ha- what that happens when this happens. No, no, you can't go back to work. You have to do this and this yeah. with another cop. You're just like immediately. Yeah. So what happened? Would you, you just go through it and the story doesn't take two hours. It takes 10 minutes. Yeah. You know, and right. Well, it's even terminology. So you can you can talk to somebody from prison and say, hey, what did you think about whatever process you had to go through with with police? It's like, oh, yeah, I got in a modified Weaver stance. I was ready to. Right. You know, I was in the shooting position. I was I was I was using a SIG P220 45 caliber um, stuff like that. Like it just you, you can tell the story in a little bit different way. One of the things that I've learned from from podcasting and from being on different interviews is I, I have to. I have to respect the fact that people don't know those that terminology. Yeah. So I have to explain it a little bit more. And it's. It, I was just gonna say it's it's funny you'll meet a somebody else who gets out like if they just got out. You'll say like you know you know how do you feel around four o'clock and they're like oh bro I still get uncomfortable like I like I know I'm supposed to be in my cell waiting like for count yeah. you know if you say hey how much you know hey what about this what about that? you could there are little things that you can say. And they go, oh man, I still feel uncomfortable with this. Or, oh no, I'm I'm way like I don't even bother me anymore, bro. That didn't even, you know. So there's there's that that is that's great. There's part some, of that life that you lived. Yeah, you know? yeah. Well, and especially in prison, like prior to that, like there's all kinds of stuff that I have no like. If you're like a drug dealer or something, I have no real, I, I have no real understanding of exactly what's going on. But you know, I do know that if I talk to some guy in prison and I say, you know, you still wake up at five, and they'll go, yeah, that's when the COs turn their lights on. Doesn't matter that just like with even you know even my girlfriend is like you know um, she's like you're waking up at four o'clock I'm I'm she's like do you ever sleep and I go I can't sleep past five I absolutely cannot be in bed past five that's when the COs turn the lights on like I I just can't do it I, the only thing that's changed for me with with police work is I used to be able to stay up all night I don't I don't I can't I've done it a couple of times I don't like it I can't right. stand it. You know, you work a midnight shift, and, and there's certain rules that you have to follow personally as working midnight shifts. It's the one thing I, I've lost, and thankfully I have lost it because it's, it's unhealthy to work midnights. It's unhealthy to stay up that whole time drinking coffee, doing whatever you're doing. That's the one thing that's going away from me. Everything else pretty much stays the same, the different habits. So do you like uh, you like the, doing the podcast? Like uh, after you do the podcast, when the people leave, do you feel good about it or you feel— it's therapy for us. Right. It is total therapy for us. We we hear these different things. And we get a new perspective on different parts of suffering, and it feels good. It feels good. And we always say, that, yeah, downloads are important for this business and stuff, but if we can just hit that one person. We just had uh, uh, the band Overkill. They were, they were real big in the 80s. They've been around for 40 years. They've been around forever. We just had a guy, the rhythm guitarist, a guy named Derek Taylor, came in. Um 
his he's been a professional musician for 30 years played with D Snyder played with you know played for Overkill for the last 21 20 years 20 years but he has a autistic and son cerebral, cerebral with palsy. cerebral palsy who's nonverbal he's 32 years old right and this guy has been able to be at the top of his game and still be this super dad i have the utmost respect for this guy he's not a first responder but he's got his own suffering and and when you listen to him you and he he's the type of guy who'll say well, I don't really know what you really want me to talk about. I'm like, what do you mean? You got the toughest job in the world and you're still at the top of your career. What are you talking about? They tore the globe and yet his son, every time his son sees him, he, he's it's his hero. Right. So, I mean, that's what we're talking about. This is a guy, I mean, they're, they're, over, they're a thrash metal band, you know, like the, in the genre of like Metallica and the Slayer and all that. And, and they are huge over in Europe. You know, they play all these, these outdoor venues, um, these music festivals, they could be playing in front of 70,000, 80,000 people. And here's a guy that's in Europe for, say, three months, and he's got this son at home that is totally dependent, nonverbal. You know, how do you, how do you keep your, your, at the height of your game, worrying about your son at home? And humble? Like, he's like, I, I don't understand. Yeah. It's just what he does. That's what his life is. So he just, I just spoke with him the other night, and he, he got a message from somebody on social media about, hey, look, because he's also adopted. He goes, look, I was an adopted person. I adopted eight kids, three of which are special needs, and you really gave me a lot of hope. Like, stuff like that, when you get stuff like that, you're like, okay, now that's why I'm doing this and that's what we would continue to do We're, we'll we'll continue it for as long as people download our episodes right because again without it, it, it it's still fun when it no longer becomes fun then maybe we'll have a different discussion i, I think one of the best things is the the relationship that we have with a lot of the, the former yes. guests now they're all family yeah we but, tell them that when they leave you know fortunately or unfortunately you're part of our family now like we were talking about gene uh gene hallberger he has a golf outing every year. We go you know, to that. We go to that and just won't even, like last year, I didn't even tell him I was showing up. Yeah. Just showed up. And when he looked at me, his whole face just dropped. Came over and gave me a big hug. Because it's just all part of giving back. You know, our suffering is unto ourselves. But other people are going through suffering that need, whether it be a kick in the ass or, or you know, shoulder to cry on, you know, an, an ear to listen to you. And that's what we're there for. And that's what we do this podcast for, to help other people out. Listen, what I went through and what I'm still going through after that shooting, I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. Because it never goes away, just so everybody understands that. It subsides a little bit, but it never goes away. You, you still have flashbacks, you know, for years. I mean, I still, like I said, one of the last things, when I put my head on a, on a pillow every night, one of the last things I see is that guy's head, forehead just opening up. You know? I thought it was the guy pulling his pants down in front of you. Well, that, Jesus. That's usually right after that. Um, <laughs> wow. uh, but think about this, though, Matt. So this podcast, we, we, we talk about everybody being family. We have a group of friends now that are second to none, and they are so diverse. You know, we, we're friends with the dirtiest cop in New York City and, and, and a mobster. <laughs> last, and a, night, last night, that was a group. <laughs> yeah, that was a group last night. I mean, Thank <laughs> God no cameras were out last night. <laughs> I mean, but be, they all, just like, they all own their damage. And we have pro sports guys. We have Derek, who's a professional musician. And then we have all of our first responders friends. 
friends. It's it's an amazing thing. And Mike and I say this all the time. When we sit back and you actually sit back and you reflect upon all this stuff, just think about all the people that have been in here. Just reflect upon it for a second. You're like, wow, I'm, I, I, I live this. Like, what's going on? I'm just, I'm, a, I'm nobody. I'm a piece of white trash from South Jersey. That's all I am. I'm still white trash, right? Yeah. yeah. I was just going to say, yeah. you beat me to it. Yeah, I know. That's, I just disarmed you on that one. Um, yeah, this has been a horrible podcast, bro. This is depressing. <laughs> this is killing me. Like, I'm almost fucking in tears. Like, it's just listening, just listening to you guys. I mean, you guys seem to be having a good time. And this is like, well, you know, typically, it, I, I'm sorry, typically, like these guys, at least the criminals have fun stories. <laughs> I'm, I'm sitting here like he's tearing up. Your, your, your eyes are tearing up. And I'm thinking, gee, you know, I'm like, Jesus, this is horrible. Bro. Like, what did you say to me before? Last night, your, your girlfriend looked at me and said, what's wrong with him? Yeah, what's going on with this guy? <laughs> what, people what's going on? What's his story? See, now you, now you get to Something's go upstairs up. and tell her what happened. Yeah. <laughs> it's just you have to pivot. Yeah, they're horrible stories. And as cops, we had a lot of fun. Yeah. Like, I could sit here and tell you fun cop stories all the time. Things where I laughed uncontrollably, stupid things. Yeah. But but when I do these things, when I tell this story and, and it reaches that one person, that's what makes it, that's the light right there that's what makes me feel better that's what makes them feel better and that that's what this is all about like if you want to hear fun cop stories i got a, I got a million yeah. of them this the, yeah i was gonna say like you know it's funny just just interviewing people it's like sometimes i interview somebody and you know like as horrible maybe maybe horrible things that they've done you know but they have a great outlook you know on it or other things people have done stuff that's not a big deal and you can tell they're they're like depressed about it and they're upset about it and i feel bad about it. and they want to apologize and they want to do you know what i'm saying it's mm-hmm. the same thing when i do podcasts and i'll go and look in the comments like people are like you know he's bragging he's a piece of shit he's a fucking this he's that it's a you know you have a lot of people that say you know all oh my you know he was brilliant he was this he was that but it's like it's like you know people don't like nobody wants to see me sit here and you know cry and be sad about my story. There's most of the time when I tell a story, it's entertaining. But, but what you guys are doing is you're out there trying to you know trying to help people and and it's also therapeutic for you. Mm-hmm. And you know so it's it's just a, a vastly different podcast. It's a de- different feel to it. That's all. You know what. I- in that's a, why we lighten it up with humor. Just so you know, that's yeah. why Mike, Mike, and I will bust each other's balls constantly because it is serious. You're absolutely right. It is. It is dark, but it it doesn't have to be. We're trying to show people that your darkest of times don't need to be so dark. Right. You can have fun inside. You can still be a normal human being. You know, it, it's like when when you're for us when your critical incident defines you. That's when it bothers me. You know what I'm saying? I, I ne- I've done so many things in my career, not blowing smoke up my ass, but, you know, CPR saves, running into burning buildings. Uh, but I'm always known as the cop that shot someone. Right. Because I was the first one in Lyndhurst to ever do it, you know. And that incident defines me now. That bothers the hell out of me. You know, nobody talks about all the other stuff I did in my life, all in my career. You know, I was telling Kevin, you know, I used to drive down the street, see kids throwing a football in the street. I'd pull the police car over, get out in uniform, throw the football with them, and just to get the, hey, thanks, officer. I really appreciate it. You know, that, to me, was what law enforcement was about. That's what I got in it for, to help people and to you know, be that local neighborhood cop. You know? But now I'm defined by this incident. Well, same All thing right. with you, Matt. You're always going to be defined by oh, what yeah. you did in the past. You make these beautiful paintings. You write these books. 
you do all this other, you do this podcast, you do all this other stuff, but you're always going to be defined by that. Yeah, no doubt. The one of the guys we were with last night, John Elite, he will always be defined no matter what he's doing now. And John is doing some really great stuff. Like he'll go out and talk about the mythology of, of the mafia life. But, uh, but he's always going to be defined as John Gotti said, yeah. man. I, do you remember the kids that, um, I forget the, the college, was it in Texas or where they'd been blamed for uh, uh, raping a girl yeah. in, a, in a fraternity? And then it came out later that she made the whole thing up yeah. and it was all bullshit and the, the, it, just, it just never happened. And one of those kids, when they dropped the charges and said, wow, you know, you're right, that's not what happened. And um, he, said, he said it wasn't you know, getting arrested and doing all the other stuff. He said it wasn't what bothered me. He goes, what bothers me is the rest of my life, no matter what I do. He goes, I can raise a family. I could start businesses. I could do amazing things. He goes, when I die, my obituary will say this is a kid that was accused of rape. Yep. He said, I will always, that will always be my obituary, no matter what. But isn't that the way it always is? Labels, lab, we label at the lowest common denominator. Uh, that's we, a great way of saying it. We always, a great way of saying we it. always do that, no matter what it is. Um, you know, millennials. I know tons of millennials who are great people, hard workers, really sharp people. But what's your view of millennials? Oh, lazy. Yeah. Entitled. Yeah, and you can take every group of people in the United States and lump them into that. Look at Woodstock. Yeah. You know, hold Woodstock. Oh, they're a bunch of pot smokers. They're CEOs. There's a bunch of people. As a matter of fact, you know? the doctor that treated both of us was at Woodstock, and he is he is so far on the other side of what you would think somebody from Woodstock is. Right. Yeah. I mean, he, he's, he's, but he's lazy. He'll always be like the Woodstock doctor. Yeah, you he's know? always Woodstock like, doctor. When, when we talk about, like Kevin said, John elite, you know, uh, it wasn't, Oh, we have John elite coming into the show. It's like, Hey, we got a mobster coming. Yeah. Right. right. He's going to be defined as a mobster his whole life now. Great story about him. So the first time I ever talked to him, he's going off the rails on another mobster, <laughs> how he's a phony, how he's no good, he's a liar. And he goes, the guy's only shot one guy. And I go, John. I go, John, I go, John think about what you just said there. He's only shot one guy. So, if, you know, I don't want to say, I don't exactly want to say what I said after that, but that's, that's how you get tied into all that stuff. Yeah. That, that we guys got to walk away from the labels because you're, you're Matt Cox, the author. You're Matt Cox, the, the, the painter. And that's the important stuff because that's what you're doing right now. But right. then you got Mike Dowd, who's always just going to be the dirtiest well, Mike, cop yeah, in New York City Mike, Mike, is, Mike is just, yeah. yeah God. I love hanging around him because he makes me feel normal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's funny. Um, I was going to say, it's it's funny what's normal to me. And, and, and me and you know the other guys that are here, like, we're having a normal conversation that, to me, we'll talk for 45 minutes about this. Oh, and then, one, oh, yeah, no, 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 listen. One, oh, that's not, listen, one time, you know, one-upping each other, just kind of just goofing around. And then you read the comments and you see the views and you realize and, and people are going nuts and you're and, and, and you're like you have to kind of like for us we have to step back and go, I guess a lot of guys haven't gone into a bank, given them fake documents, showed them a fake ID and walked out with a check for two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Yeah, that that is a little odd. Like <laughs> like I'm always curious or shocked when people find me fascinating or start saying, bro, what this was amazing and this and this and this. And I'm like, okay, okay, okay. But I'm looking at them thinking that was just, you know, for me, a natural progression. But I guess if you're a guy that works at Tire Kingdom, you know, and you've never really been in trouble, yeah. 
then for them, they're that's that's you know you're you're shocking or amazing or they're they're fascinated by you. You you were telling some. You were talking last night, and I was fascinated by half of the stuff you're saying. Because you're you're actually right. looking at your life from from the elevated right. position. Yeah. You're you're looking at your life from right. a story. But while you were doing it, it was just okay. This okay. Let's do this. Let's do this. But and it's it's real f- fascinating because you just figured it out. Like you just figured it out. Even now, like that's how I see you. I don't see you as somebody who did that stuff. I see you as somebody who has figured everything out in their life. And I'm sure you're not, I'm, I'm positive you're not perfect. And I'm positive you still have your damage. Yeah, but me. you take you take a thought and you almost wish it into existence. Like, this is what I'm going to do. And I'm going to do it. And you do it effectively. You do it successfully. And that's the admirable trait. And that's what I think is your, your, your defines your life now. That's how I see you anyway. Where me... I don't want to be defined as my shooting. I want to be defined as the cop who helps others get through it. Right. Mike and I sit down we, every week. We, we sit down with a variety of different guests just to talk about people's suffering and how to get through them and how to come out on the other side a little bit cleaner. Uh, just visit thesufferingpodcast.com. There'll be links to all of our Instagram accounts, Facebook, LinkedIn, TikTok, Twitter, all those things. And then our second portion is the is Dented Development Project. You just go to dentedevelopmentproject.com. We are a nonprofit organization, 501c3, trying to do our best in order to pay the help that we received forward. Right. So if you could go to that link and, and get involved, we'd greatly appreciate well, it. What right. we do with Dented Development Project is we, um, any money we raise, we donate to um, families or officers and their families, uh, first responders that are in need. You know, if God forbid someone, you know, is lost to suicide or something, we could throw them some money and right. you know so that, that's what we do with all the money that we raise for that we don't we don't make we don't take a penny out of that ourselves um i was gonna say uh if you send all the links to so all all the links will be in the description uh section of youtube which is one of the reasons i was saying you should definitely you know think about doing the youtube thing did like you see pack. what this guy looks like matt you want so, me to put him on camera so you can put all in the description we'll put all the all the links and uh and uh, everything, and you know, and I've I've listened to the podcast, and they're, you know, heart wrenching, um, but uh, hard to listen to, yeah. but uh, yeah, but they're they're you know they're yeah they're they're great they're actually very professional. Your voice on like is not you, but, but you know, <laughs> well, yeah. he, he turns yeah. my mic down. Great, so. You got a great voice. He does. He's he got, got a radio voice. Yeah, he does. He's got a voice for radio and a face for radio yeah. too. That's why we're not going video. You know yet. the funny now when you listen to yourself. Here's just a quick question I got for you. When you listen to yourself on your show. Do you like your voice? No, I, I never watch my shows. Almost never. Like I, I, I very seldom, very seldomly do I, I, I watch. You know, and and it's um, and it's funny when you mention the the other thing uh, about like we were talking about the um, you know, just just basically like being like doing the things that I've done, um, in general. I was talking to Tommy one time, and he had made a comment about. We were talking, I don't think we were on, on video, where he had said, I had said something like, yeah, you know, I said, you know, this is just, this is what happened. This is how my life progressed, and I made a bunch of bad decisions. I said, I mean, I would have rather have been, you know, teaching my kids, you know, soccer team, you know, and just been a normal guy. And, uh, and I said, because, you know, and been happy. And he said, um, he was, oh, well, well, you know, those guys think they're happy. And, you know. But the truth is, that's what—that's how I wish my life had progressed. Like, 
I, you know, he was like kind of mocking the average guy, the average um, middle class guy. But the truth is, like, I envy that guy. Like when I say Tire Kingdom or mm-hmm. or um or I talk about uh you know working at Walmart or something and I say it, people always think I'm mocking them. But the truth is I envy those people. I wish my life had taken that path. There was a great scene that Robert De Niro does in the Bronx Tale. Right. When he's talking to Colodro and he says, uh, you know, you think these guys are, are heroes. Or you think these guys are courageous. Try getting up and going to work every day. Right. And and those are the real heroes. Right. And I the, couldn't do it. Yeah. I couldn't do it. I wish I could. But you're doing it now. I mean, I'm doing it now, but, you know. So what? Now that, you know, I've trashed everything. <laughs> but so. you haven't, though. And again, right. this is this is the whole point of it. You haven't. You can start from step. There There is a starting point from step two. You just, you just got to figure out a way to do it. And you you do that. So just just because you did what you did doesn't mean you can't do great things in the future, right? You know, I mean, the, I'm you know, eh, I'm working on it. Yeah, I mean, but even just look at I would look I'll at let the you in, paintings I'll let you, that you have. I mean, yeah, no, I want to let you in to be part of the police world. You're crying, you sissy dude. I'm sorry. Yeah, you no, know, I know. I'm. Uh, <laughs> I forget. Was it? Danny? I just want to make make you feel like a little I, bit I of think a. Danny family. said something one time when I uh, I teared up or something. And I said, yeah, I cry easy. And he goes, well, why is that? I go, because I'm kind of a pussy. <laughs> and he was like, no, sh-, you know, he was like. Hey, but, yeah. hey listen. That's but an, you're a that's, real person. Though. That's an emotion. You yeah. know, crying's an emotion. Laughing, you know, crying. If you show no emotion, that's when you're, that's when I believe you got no hope of turning your life around. When you show no emotion, you got no hope anymore. You're oh, just going to, you're going to stick right in that, that rut you've been in. Up until I went to prison, like I probably cried three times my yeah. whole life. You know, then I went to prison and then really since I got out of prison, really, I think not, not just that really after I got the 26 years, I've been crying like a bitch ever since. That that might be, that might be like releasing your past. But again, so, okay, there's a perfect point. You cried three times. Is it really the right way to do things? Or is is what you're doing now the proper way to deal with your emotions? No, no, this is, this is, this This is is the better this is the better way instead of getting pissed off and walking away and, and burying it and, and feeling like shit and not sleeping for you know three days. And yeah, no, no. Well, you know, they, they say, you know, never let them see you cry. Well, why not? Yeah. I don't know. Why not? Yeah. You know, enough of this, this male macho bullshit. You know, we all have feelings. We all have emotions and they're going to, they're going to get out sometimes. And if you don't like me crying, I'll pop you right in the face. <laughs> I mean, that's all it is. But thank you very much for having us here. I, I do truly, truly appreciate you having us on your show. Absolutely, yeah. and letting us come in your house. This is yeah. This is this is nice. I just wish you ordered some better weather for us. You know. Yeah, we come all the way down to Florida. It's fifty and rainy. I come mean, on. and I got shorts on today because I said I'm in Florida. I'm wearing shorts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there was ice on my windows. Like we don't. I don't know what to do. Like yeah, the, I, I immediately turned on. You know, it was uh, it was thirty degrees, and I hit the the windshield wiper thing. Like my, we were going to the gym, and it what, well, and nothing came out. I go, and you know, Jess looked at me like, "What are you an idiot? It's thirty degrees. There's ice in the. You're, they're frozen. What do you think's gonna happen?" Like, oh yeah, yeah, that's right, the ice thing. I forgot about that. Well, Very I, impressed by Jess, by the way. Very yeah. impressed. So I, I have a feeling why you're so successful now, because you got a good woman behind you. 
Yeah, well, this month. This month. Um, <laughs> you knew the whole story. Oh, boy. I'm trying, right. Listen, I'm trying to help you, brother. I, I I'm know, trying to help I you, know. and you're just you're burying yourself. Setup. Well, you got, you got beat down a little bit last night because, you know, everybody was blowing you up, and she was like, oh, oh God, no, yeah, not again. Here we around. go. <laughs> yeah. She knows. She, yeah, and she'll, I'll, I'll say, I'll say, did you see that guy? He thought I was awesome. She's like, he doesn't know you. <laughs> so... Hey, I appreciate you guys watching, and uh, if you like the video, do me a favor and hit the subscribe button, hit the bell so you get notified, leave a comment in the comment section, and share the video to all your friends and family, and I appreciate it, and I will see you.